Welcome to the Life Academy Podcast. Hi friends, Doug Pratt speaking to you from the studio of First Church in Bonita Springs for this podcast in which we will be exploring a Christian perspective on American exceptionalism. I don't claim this is the Christian perspective, but it is a Christian perspective, and the thoughts I'll be sharing with you are intended to spark some thought and enhance understanding. I want to begin by saying I love my country, and I know it's not perfect, I know it's flawed, but I love it nonetheless, just as I love my family, even though they're not perfect. In fact, my family has a lot of flaws, and I know more about the imperfections and flaws of my family than anybody outside it does, and yet I love them. It is a natural impulse. In the same way, it is natural for all people to love their family, their tribe, their alma mater, their clan, their nation. It is a natural human instinct. I really do not understand the motivation of people who are Americans and claim that they hate America. My lower nature wants to respond to them, fine, you're free to leave. I'm sure you'll be much happier in Cuba or North Korea. My higher nature, however, says I should respond by pointing out that God teaches us in his word, Christians are to be good citizens, maybe the best citizens, to love their country and to, by obeying a higher authority, God, to be a positive impact upon that country and to work to make it even better. Well, we're going to be thinking about this issue of patriotism, which is a natural human instinct and is in itself good, created by God. It's a part of who we are as human beings. On top of a natural patriotism, there are reasons why some countries deserve special, worthy devotion by their past or their present actions. But because every aspect of human nature can be warped and flawed by sin, patriotism is not always perfect, and at times it can lead to great evil as it becomes a nationalism that hates all others and that defends an evil state. The classic example of the last century, of course, was Nazi Germany, where Hitler taught his people to love Germany and hate all other nations and to love their so-called Aryan race and hate all, as they thought, inferior races. That kind of superiority, that kind of arrogance is purely evil. And so that form of patriotism we reject, even as we affirm its positive nature. Now, let's make it very practical from our own times. The slogan upon which former President Trump ran for office in 2016 and then governed for four years was the two-word America First slogan. People reacted in opposite ways to that. Some perceived it as being almost Nazi-like, an elevation of our nation leading to bigotry and to hatred of others. On the other side, many other people perceived that President Trump was restoring an imbalance from his predecessor, who for eight years, in the eyes of many, 
acted as if he hated America or acted contrary to its best interests. And therefore, some view America first as being simply a natural corrective, the kind of approach that every leader of a country should take. They would argue that the Prime Minister of India should be India first, and that if he is not, if he puts other countries' interests above that of his own country, he is failing to do his primary job, which is to look out for and defend and protect his own people. So we are polarized about that, and the polarization continues as to whether President Trump's approach and those who agreed with him qualifies as appropriate patriotism or inappropriate patriotism. But today we're talking about the term American exceptionalism, which I understand to be more than just ordinary patriotism. Every country is exceptional in the sense that every country is unique. Italy is exceptional because there's no country exactly like Italy. Brazil is exceptional. Indonesia is exceptional in the sense that it has its own special flavor and culture and history. But when we speak of American exceptionalism, we are thinking partly of America's profound legacy. Look at the 20th century and early in the 21st century. America fought wars to rescue Western culture from uh, attacks in the First and Second World War, uh, as well as to defeat a, an imperial Japan that was uh, godless and aggressive and brutal. America fought the Cold War against a clearly hostile ideology of Soviet communism and won that extended conflict. America has been the biggest source of foreign aid around the world. America has done many things for which the world has been beneficiary. America's wealth, America's example of a, a representative democracy has had a profound impact upon other countries. In fact, the historic uniqueness of America's founding shows us that we were a nation founded not primarily on geography or ethnicity, but on an ideal. Let me share with you the words of Eric Metaxas, a brilliant historian who has carefully looked at our founding documents and how they have been lived out. And this is what he says. In 1776, a nation was formed in a way that a nation had never been formed. It was something entirely new. The nation as an idea. For the first time, a nation was created that was not merely a group of ethnically or tribally similar people, nor was it a nation composed of disparate groups held together by a strong leader. Until the advent of the United States of America, these were the two groups into which nations must fall. The country born in 1776 fit neither of these categories. It was an idea that held America and Americans together, and this idea, in a word, was liberty. And beyond that, Metaxas points out, we were founded not just for personal liberty, but we are a nation with a mission beyond ourselves and beyond our borders. 
Metaxas says we are a nation with a mission to the rest of the world. We are to shine not so that we can admire our own brightness, but so that we hold out a beacon of hope to the rest of the world. Our exceptionalness is not for ourselves, but for others. And he reminds us that the face of the Statue of Liberty is not turned inward toward the American continent, but outward to beckon and to welcome others. Another example of this exceptional concept, unique among nations, is found on the back of our dollar bills. If you have one in your wallet or your purse, take it out and look on the flip side of the photo uh, or portrait of our first president, we find the Great Seal of the United States, which was commissioned at the same time as the Declaration of Independence. The founders wanted to express graphically their concept of this new nation and its unique purpose and its unique mission. You will find a pyramid, a pyramid representing the nations of the world, and at the top of the pyramid is not found a strong man, a king, an emperor, a leader, as would typically be the case, but rather a triangle representing the Christian God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with the image of an eye in the middle of the triangle, a common 18th century image of God, the all-seeing and all-knowing providence of the Lord. The symbol of the great seal of the United States clearly says to the world, we are a nation that recognizes God is our king, not any human being. He's at the top of our pyramid. And then we find Latin words across the top and the bottom of the seal. The top one, annuit septus, means he, that is God, has favored our endeavor. The founding fathers were convinced that it was God who providentially guided and led them. And then at the bottom, novum seculo ordum, a new order for the ages. The image of America is to be a new kind of country. And indeed, our impact has spread so that so many countries have founded themselves and built their constitutions on the vision expressed by our founding as the first. If you would like to do further reading in the concept of American exceptionalism, I recommend to you the book, America the Exceptional, Restoring a Wayward Nation's Greatness by Frank Moore, published just this year, and If You Can Keep It by Eric Metaxas, that's about five years old. We're gonna be reflecting a bit on a few of the current issues that are facing America before I close. Issue number one, the twin and opposite poles of security and freedom. People constantly are torn between these two impulses. And in fact, a government needs to decide which it will prioritize. Many people believe that the choice of Europeans in their modern welfare state since the, the end of the Second World War is uh, found in Western Europe to give a priority to security over freedom. And so Europeans pay a much higher level of taxation, but in return, the government promises, we'll take care of you from cradle to grave. The opposite impulse has been at the center of America. In fact, Benjamin Franklin said, 
A free society is by nature unsafe. We need to choose whether we're going to prioritize safety and require that the government protect all of us and be our source of security or whether it is government's job to give us the freedom to take care of ourselves and to live our lives as we choose. Frank Moore, the author of the book I mentioned, says life is work, pain, trial, error, and disappointment. And we do not retreat from that, but we persevere through it. That is where we gain our personal and our national strength, not from hiding from danger, but from having the freedom to overcome it. There are some who feel that the balance between security and freedom during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 and early 2021 allowed the government to insert itself in the form of providing security for people, but at the cost of freedom. So those two poles are gonna be in constant tension. The second point I wanna make is the distinction between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. Equality of outcome, which is sometimes referred to in the pious word equity and sounds like a very noble uh, goal, is actually the goal of socialism, that everyone will be equal in their outcome, in their results, that everyone will live at the same level. It is a forced or mandated equity or equality that goes contrary to the spirit of capitalism and democracy, which is driven by a provision of the equality of opportunity. This is what we find in our Declaration of Independence. In those words, we are told that all have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and that the role of government is to secure those rights of seeking opportunity. And therefore, we need to be aware whenever we hear the word equity uh, spoken by a politician or an academic uh, as if it is the ultimate goal, that has never been the goal of American uh, sacred documents and founding documents. A third issue I want to talk about is the distortion or the ignorance of history and the denigration or substitution of heroes. It has become common in some circles today to uh, ignore history or to try to change it according to our own personal preferences. That attempt will only fail ultimately because people will eventually discover the truth. Just as the attempt of the Soviet Union to try to prevent the people under its domination from knowing the truth about Western society ultimately failed. The truth will leak, the truth will win out. But there is a strong movement today to try to attack heroes of the past. Let's keep this in mind. There has never been a perfect human except one. Every other person who has ever walked the planet has had some flaws and every one of our heroes, whatever uh, they are being celebrated for, has had some imperfections. Heroes, however, are elevated for having had one or more notable qualities that are admirable and worthy of our emulation. Therefore, we do not claim that, for example, George Washington was a perfect man, 
but we admire those traits that allowed him to lead our country through its most dangerous days and to experience a new birth of freedom. The same with Abraham Lincoln, not a perfect man. We admire him. There are many heroes whom we should admire without idolizing them or considering that they are equal to God. Another issue I want to talk about just briefly is what has become, I believe, a clear bias against the Christian faith. Even though it is true, most who founded our country were themselves Christians or at least acknowledged it to be the correct worldview and the one that would be the foundation of our nation, there are some bitter critics of the Christian faith today. In fact, some who have their own agenda, I believe would like to remove Christian faith from all of public life. And that is something that the church is uniquely called to stand up against. And I'll be talking much more about that, I'm sure, in months and years to come, because it is our calling to defend as much as we can with our own rights and with our own constitution, the freedom to live out our faith and to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as Jesus calls us to be. Another issue I want to raise is the subtle lure of royalism. Charismatic leaders can attract passionate followers. The uh, charisma of President Trump was undeniable. The charisma of President Obama was undeniable. The current president, uh, I think in no one's thoughts, is uh, somewhat of strong personal charisma and probably was chosen uh, precisely as a reaction to President Trump's uh, strong charisma. But we need to be careful, though charismatic leaders can do much. They can rally people to a cause. They can, with articulate expression, um, lead the nation in the direction they think is right. But we are not a people who want a king. We will not follow a king. And we need to be careful that we not seek one and lift up on a pedestal any individual. It is our values that made us who we are as a nation, not any strong individual. Theodore Roosevelt, not a shrinking violet himself and one who occupied the highest elected position in our land, wrote these words, patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any other public official, save exactly to the degree in which he himself stands by the country. Every man who parrots the cry of stand by the president without adding the proviso, so far as he serves the republic, takes an attitude as essentially unmanly as that of any Stuart royalist. Those were the supporters of the deposed king in England who championed the doctrine that the king can do no wrong. No self-respecting and intelligent free man could take such an attitude. And so we need to be on our guard that though we may support various charismatic leaders, we are not to lift them to the level of king. George Washington was admirable precisely for his choice to decline the offer of kingship when the Continental Army uh, won victoriously over the British in the American Revolution. The army wanted to proclaim their general as king and he would have none of it and said blatantly, 
I did not fight a war against King George III in order to be named King George I. We admire Washington precisely for that, that he chose to turn down the power that was offered to him. And then let me say a word about the origin of rights. Remember that rights, according to our American founding documents, do not come to us from government. They come from God. It is government's responsibility to protect and preserve those rights. But if a government grants rights, it can take them away. And our founders clearly recognized that rights are from God alone. And then let me comment upon what I perceive to be the motivations of the anti-America, American far left. We have people regrettably in our country today who would like to change, to have a revolution, to tear down much of what America is and has been. What is their motivation? I believe that the motivation of the anti-American far left is in two categories. There's a small group of people, the leaders of the organization, who know exactly what they want, who do want a revolution, and they want it because they want power. This was exactly what we saw with Lenin and the boys in 1917, who promised to the millions of serfs of Russia that they were going to give them liberty from the oppression of the Tsar. But in fact, we saw immediately that as soon as they gained power, it was all about exercising that power for themselves. There are some who would revolutionize America because they want to be on the top. And then there is a much larger group of people who are essentially naive and do not understand clearly the motivations of the leaders of the far left, but who are going along with the pack because it seems to be acceptable to the in crowd or because they like the vague generalities of equity and tolerance. But keep in mind from history that this is exactly what led to the disastrous French Revolution. The people of France were fed up with the corruption of the king and the Roman Catholic Church's bureaucracy and they wanted a change and they were inspired by vague ideals of equality and fraternity and liberty, but had no clear idea of how to actually organize government and run a society. And thus, after their revolution came chaos, followed by exactly the opposite of what they wanted, bondage under an emperor, a dictator named Napoleon. So a lot of revolutions, seemingly high-minded but not well thought through have proved to be disastrous. And those who naively are following the far left anti-American uh, campaign today, I think would be surprised if that were ever to succeed, they would not get what they think they would get. Well, let me close from a Christian perspective with a sense of assurance that I'm convinced our nation and its future, seemingly very perilous today, are in the hands of God and His providence. And that same sense of God's providence is what inspired a group of men and women 245 years ago to take a huge gamble and seek to gain their independence from the world's strongest empire. And they did so, believing that if their cause was right, God would guide them and direct them. And so he did. And I 
remind you of a most dramatic incident. It happened in 1787 on the June the 28th in the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. This group of people from all of the 13 newly freed colonies, now 13 states, gathered for several months, were at a deadlock, an impasse. It seemed as if they could never agree on a government to bring forth. Out of that frustration, Franklin, not typically known as a, an evangelical Christian, but I believe a man who came to a greater faith, perhaps even a personal saving faith in God by the end of his life. And these words, near the end of his life, he was the senior statesman of that assembly, are in a profound context. Franklin stood up before the assembly, so deadlocked and hopelessly uh, unable to find a resolution. And he said, we have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics, which having been formed with the seed of their own destruction now no longer exist. And in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened that we have not hitherto once thought of applying to the Father of Lights to illumine our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this very room for God's protection. Our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who are engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence that is God's guidance in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future, future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend, God? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? Well, Franklin goes on to say, I've lived a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate circumstance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Isn't that amazing that Benjamin Franklin reminding the Constitutional Convention that they had not been praying and seeking God's will, but had been trusting in their own wisdom. Franklin's call was unanimously approved. And from that day on, people of the Constitutional Assembly knelt in prayer at the beginning of every day. And within a few weeks, a compromise was found and our government was born. God had answered that prayer. I am in prayer for our country and I am sure you are as well. I cannot see the short-term or long-term future, 
but I believe God is still on his throne. And I believe that there's a very real possibility God is not finished with America, but that he will once again, as he has in the past, choose to bless our nation. To that end, I pray, I invite you to pray and to work, and we will together seek to make America continue to be exceptional. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us for this Life Academy episode. We encourage you to subscribe. And if you enjoy our podcast, please share it with your friends and family.